you would, please take your Bibles out and open them up to the book of Daniel. There we resume our study this morning. We took a break last week for Easter to look specifically at the, uh, the resurrection of Jesus. But today we continue our study as we find ourselves in Daniel 2. This morning, one of the, of course, it is pivotal in the sense that we begin to see it's right after chapter 1 where we've gotten all the context of when this is, what is kind of happening, where we are in the world. Of course, we're in Babylon at this point. The exile for the southern kingdom has begun at this point. Um, Daniel and his friends have been marked out as exceptional in their wisdom and their capacity to understand uh, deeper, more or wisdom literature and, and other stuff within Babylonian culture. And so now we get kind of the first, we're at the place where we get the real first test of Daniel. Uh, what is it, it going to be like for him? How's he going to live? What's he going to do? And all those different kinds of questions that the, this narrative text is raising for us because we were told that Daniel is wise. He was wiser than all the others. He and his friends were wiser than all the other contemporaries that they had there. We're told that Daniel had the capacity, God-given capacity, by, to understand dreams and visions. And so we're, we're given that special parenthetical statement about Daniel, and then we kind of come into it in chapter 2. Is Daniel really gifted? Is Daniel going to use his gifts for God's glory? Those types of questions that we would ask ourselves. Is this going to be a stand for Daniel, or will he capitulate to culture? And you're going to hear me raise those questions again and again, because I really do believe in a lot of this narrative literature, especially when you see God's people kind of uprooted and planted in the midst of pagan cultures, the number one question is always that when we come to those texts, the number one question we should always ask is, how will they live? What will they do? Because we understand that so much of Israel's history, the overarching theme of Israel's history is her failure in moments where she's put into situations where she had an opportunity to live for God, she capitulates to broader culture. And so when we see examples in places like Daniel here or Joseph in Egypt in, in the book of Genesis, and we see them go against the grain, we see them make a stand for truth, we see them actually want to live for and honor Yahweh in the midst of a pagan culture, well, of course, it's easy for us to say, well, yeah, that's what they should do. And of course, we can read it and think that, but when we're actually living it out, it is not an easy charge. It is a difficult task. And so rightly, these men and women are commemorated in Scripture who take their principles of faith so seriously that they say, I'm willing to die for it. Even if it kills me, this is where I'll stand. It encourages me, dear friends, because we are all human beings. Daniel put on his robe the same way you put on yours. There's nothing special about Daniel other than God called him out of the world to be a man who shines brightly for him. Do you know what Jesus has said about each one of you sitting here this morning? If you call Christ Lord, do you know what he's said of you? He's called you out of this world to be salt and to be light, to shine brightly in the midst of a dark world. And so when we look at Daniel, it's easy to say, well, I could never do that. If we make a stand for Jesus right here in Gainesville, Florida, you're doing exactly what Daniel did. Now, you might not have to face some hungry lions, which is to your benefit. You might not get thrown in a furnace, which is great. You know, you, know, you won't get burned up, but you still have the same opportunity to bear witness for Christ. That is why books like Daniel are a powerful message to us today. It's as relevant right now as it ever has been. 
Well, this morning we find ourselves in the midst of the narrative in chapter 2. We begin our study today in Daniel chapter 14. We will read to verse 30. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible and errant word. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who'd gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets kings up. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep, deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore, Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its inter interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in the bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in the bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what it is, what it is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be, known, may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing. Please pray with me for a moment. Father, your word is before us and open and rich and true. Be with us now as we study. Be with us as we go through this bit by bit. Use it to help us to deepen our roots in you and help us to grow stronger in our faith. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. World War II was a tragic time in the history of the world, and of course we know the tragic events started well before the 1940s, but in the midst, in the throes of the 40s when Germany and now at this point in the time England were at war, Germany was on a blitz offensive just bombing cities left and right. Any, any enemy that they had, the Luftwaffe would go in and bomb and fight and destroy and bring these cities to their knees. There are countless stories about people who survived those types of raids, but there's one story in particular, the family's name escapes me, but this guy was writing about his time during that time, and he was writing about an observation. One night, several people in a London town were caught in the midst of bombing, and as they were all running to one shelter in particular, it, got, it exploded, 
and families begin to scatter in panic of what we're going to do. We, we've got to get out of here because bombs are bursting. Children are screaming. Dads are, are trying to help, and dads and moms are trying to help children not get lost and detached. And this one family, this one father was running, and he was running to another shelter, and it too exploded. And he, and he feared, and he saw craters in the earth where bombs had been hit. So he jumped down into this crater just to get out of harm's way, just to get low enough so that they could try to maybe ride this out until they could figure out what they wanted to do. And he let go of his child's hand, and his child couldn't see him. There was smoke. There was fire. There was hysteria. Things were popping up all around him. And the father called out to his children, come down here. Come down here. I'm down in this crater. No, Dad, we can't see you. Where are you? We can't see you. Just jump. No, no, we can't see you. They were panicking. And he was trying to calm them. He said, this is lying. And somebody watching this who also jumped down this hole, this is what they heard. I know you can't see me, but I can see you, and I need you to trust me and jump. And they did. And good, good dad caught children, got his wife and his children into the hole, and they were able to ride out until the worst of the blitzing was done, and they could find decent shelter. What a poignant picture, because where, where do we find ourselves in our faith journey so often? We can't see the other side. We can't see the end. We can't see maybe even what's right in front of us. And so what will we do? Do we panic? Do we let anxiety take over and try every other thing but the Lord? Or do we finally come to grips with the reality that we have a God who graciously, lovingly sees all things and says, jump to me, I've got you. Come to me, I have you. You are going to be safe if you follow me. It is a beautiful picture, beloved, of what is true, of what it means to have faith in the face of mystery, what it means to have faith in the face of what is unknowable in a moment or at least unseeable or unknowable from our standpoint. As Daniel 2 unfolds, we get the in-depth look of faith in the face of great mystery. I want you to think about Daniel gets put right on the spot, right in the, towards the beginning of this chapter, and what will he do? Will he, will he succumb to the hysteria that the other wise men have? Will he trust the Lord? That's the two questions in front of us. Daniel had to walk a fine line here of trusting God and being prudent in a foreign land. And I really, this is commendable. This is one of the ways that we find Daniel exemplary about how do I live prudently in a world that is against God, but also how do I not compromise my testimony? Because we can live prudently, we can live with discernment and, and prudence, but we also have a testimony that we are to keep. And Daniel is walking this fine line. So the central question, as I've already mentioned, how will Daniel respond in adversity? Because this is not the last time adversity will be confronting Daniel. He will get it again. And in fact, he will have to translate something again. And in fact, he will have to decide if he's going to pray to the God of heaven at risk of personal death. So all these things, this is just the beginning of adversity for Daniel. It's going to constantly be, how will he respond? You and I, we have a common bond with Daniel because we have to face circumstances that don't make sense all the time. We have to face circumstances that in a moment do not seem solvable, that when we look at it, we don't know how to get around this. We don't know what we're going to do. We can't see past it. And so what will we do? What will we do? How will we live? How will we respond? How do we respond? Well, one of the things we can do if we really want to follow Daniel's lead here, one of the things we can do is realize how valuable and important prayer is. 
Did you notice that? And we'll get here in just a moment. But Daniel's first response, again, was not anxiety. I'm not saying he wasn't fearful. I'm not saying he wasn't scared. But at least in the text, what we know that did happen, he prayed. That was his first thought. Let's pray. And we need to understand what a powerful tool we have in our toolbox when it comes to living for the Lord in this world and even in the face of adversity is prayer. One of the, this is one of the things that makes Daniel such a valuable resource for God's people. I mean, cultures change. Kingdoms come and go. But here's the thing. The human condition remains constant. And trials are as sure as the next sunrise. So humans, times change, kingdoms change, technology changes. The things that don't change much are human beings. We're essentially the same as they were. We're essentially given over to trial and hardship and, and evil and sin is in the world and we still have to contend with other people's wickedness. So, so much of the conditions that describe this world in the B.C. era describe our world. And so it becomes a poignant reminder. In the face of confounding mystery, we have this objective, constant truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of God that speaks through trial, that speaks through time, that speaks through all matter of things to bring truth to us when falsehood is abounding, when what's false seems to flourish. And so the word of God, it, it doesn't, you've heard me say this before, I'll say it again, it never promises ease, it never promises comfort, it never says we'll have those things in abundance, but what it does promise is life and peace. It does promise life and peace in the only one who can give that life and that peace in his name is Jesus Christ. And so when we're looking here at Daniel, the main idea I want for us to see this morning is this, that the prayer of faith is our best weapon in adversity that the prayer of faith is our best weapon in adversity. As we're looking here, as this chapter unfolds, we're kind of seeing these, kind of, these, these three pillars form. Trials, which are going to be constant. Faith, which is going to be constant. And worship. The three things that we kind of in our lives, the trials are going to come. And so the faith and worship needs to be the twin responses that we have when trials do come. That's not to say that faith and worship make trials easy, because it's easy for us to read on a page that Daniel's friends got tossed into a furnace, and they walked around with the Spirit of God, and we say, wow, that's a miracle. I can't imagine being standing at the precipice of that myself, being ready to be cast into that thing, and having already said, maybe God will save us, but maybe he won't, but we're not going to bow down, not having any real sense of assurance that they would walk out of there. So let us not assume that even the faith and worship make the trials any easier. But what the faith and worship do is they give us grounding. They give us foundation. They give us anchor. Because when the trials want to move us out away from what's good and true and beautiful, it's the faith and worship of Yahweh that keeps us grounded in that central point. That keeps us rooted, you see. Our best response in any trial, in any trial, is faith and prayer. It's any trial. That's our best response. And where, I mean, we see this most articulated in Jesus, of course. Anytime, whether Jesus was dealing with the reality of the cross, we find him praying. Jesus was praying constantly before the Lord before he did miracles. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, and he taught his disciples to believe. Because there's not a circumstance in your life and mine today, ever, 
that those aren't the most appropriate responses is faith and prayer. Faith and prayer. This particular part of Daniel opens up with Daniel replying to Arioch, the king's captain, or the captain of the king's guard, who'd gone out to kill the wise men that he had a different plan. So this is kind of, in other words, what is being painted for us first? Well, in these first few verses, we're being shown the trial. What is the trial that is at hand? Well, the trial is that the wise men are under the threat of death, and we understand why from the last time we were in Daniel, because Nebuchadnezzar had told the wise men, if you really want to show me your power and your ability, you tell me what I dreamed and then give me the interpretation. And of course, they had the whole back and forth. That's impossible for us to do, is what they said. We can't do that. And so we're, we're here. He's threatened death now. That's at the end of um, the last section that we read. He said uh, he, he threatened to kill them, to have them put to death. And so now we have Daniel and his response. And when we, we come to Daniel, it says he replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch. And so we're looking at Daniel. He, possess, he possesses this prudence, this discretion. And these things are important simply because in how he's approaching Arioch and how he's come to Arioch, we're seeing a comparison. Daniel is embodying the character of the God who saved and called him. By mentioning his prudence and his compassion or his, uh, his uh, prudence and his wisdom here, he's setting Daniel apart from the other people. His discretion, his prudence, his wisdom is showing him to be different. Why? Well, what it's telling us is in the midst of this turmoil, in the midst of this trial, you're not seeing a man panic. He's not losing it, as it were. He's coming with discretion. He's coming with prudence. He's showing that I can remain calm in turmoil because there is something more powerful than this at work. But I love the comparison that this paints between Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had wanted what he wanted. And when he didn't get what he wanted, he said, I'm going to kill you. And remember, he didn't just say, I'm going to kill you. He said, I'm going to tear you limb from limb. And then I'm going to turn your houses into an ash heap or a dung heap. And I'm going to kill your families. I mean, that's more or less, he just went kind of crazy because he wasn't going to get what he wanted. And then here's Daniel in the face of adversity the text notes with, with prudence, with discretion, that Daniel comes to Arioch and he declares to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree so urgent? In the Aramaic here, it's the word urgent there is interesting. It could mean harsh. So it's got this double meaning of the ESV translates it urgent, which is right. It's a good translation. But it could also mean harsh. So Daniel is kind of asking this double question, why is this so urgent? Why do we have to do this so quickly? Why is this so harsh? What is, what is going on here? Daniel is legitimately like asking what is making the king react so violently. Because again, we're seeing the character of Daniel at work. He's not capricious. He's methodical. He's thoughtful. When we see Nebuchadnezzar in light of this command, he's volatile. He's unstable. Daniel is calm and measured, and Nebuchadnezzar is volatile and unstable. And so you're all right at the, right at the beginning, you're getting this picture of the God-man and the world-man. The God-man lives out godly character. The world-man lives out from his flesh. And so you have that comparison right there. But here's, to me, in this whole paragraph, one of the most profound things that we read. 
So he declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree so urgent? And Daniel went in, verse 16, and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Now, I want you to let that marinate for just one second. Daniel doesn't know the dream. He doesn't know the interpretation. He has no other information. And he goes into the king, gets an audience with the king, and says, if you'll give me just a little bit of time, I will give you what you want. Beloved, that is, a man, that is a step of faith right there. That is a man who goes in there armed with faith, armed with a sincere trust in the Lord who says, I don't have what I need. There's a mystery in front of me, but I'm stepping into it because I trust the Lord. I had chill bumps. That is one of the more powerful verses in this paragraph where we have Daniel saying, give me time and I will give you what you want. And not because he has some special insight at this point, as he makes that clear here in just a moment. But Daniel, so he asked for this time, and then Daniel went to his house, and he made the matter known to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, his companions, and he told them, seek mercy from God, of, seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So before he knows what God will do, he says, I'll give you an answer, or eventually God will make it known to you. And then his faith compels him to now go to his friends in the most dire of circumstances and not say scramble, not say go nuts, pray to the God of heaven for mercy. Beloved, I cannot tell you what a powerful statement that is. If there's any other powerful statement that rivals verse 16, it's got to be this one. Not go to Nebuchadnezzar and beg him. Not, not bribe anybody you can to get us some more time so we can skin out of here. Not plead mercy from Nebuchadnezzar. Go to God. At this point, we are, we are past Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is only the obstacle. The person that they need to get to is Yahweh. And so we don't need Nebuchadnezzar's mercy. We don't need Nebuchadnezzar's niceness. We need the Lord. We need the Lord. That's where they are. And that's, that's faith at its finest, beloved. That's faith at its most beautiful point because faith compels trust in dire circumstances. What does faith do? Faith says, I will trust in uncertainty. Faith says, I will hope when it's hard. Faith says, I will have peace in turmoil. And that's not easy. That's not the easy response. But it is the right one. It is the correct response. So I'm not making light of this decision that Daniel had in front of him or what he chose to do. I'm sure it was costly in a moment, but it's beautiful because we see here the beauty of faith at work. And as this continues to unfold, they, he goes to his friends, he says, please ask that the mystery be revealed, mercy from the God of heaven, and then we're told in verse 19, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night, perhaps a dream. Perhaps Daniel himself had a dream of the dream and its interpretation. It's not very clear, but that's at least one way to understand it. And then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. So Daniel's had faith in adversity here, right? So we've seen the trial. We see how Daniel has responded to the trial itself. And now what does Daniel do? In the midst of trial, having responded in faith, it's time to worship God. The threat of death still hangs. He's still in a hard situation. He doesn't wait till he feels better. 
He doesn't wait till it feels like it would be a little bit more normal or easier to worship. He worships then. In its hardest moment, when the grief is near, when the pain or the threat of death, rather, is near, when the reality of a life's coming to an end is near, he doesn't wait until all that passes and then decides, I will worship God. He worships now. There's an urgency there. Faith and worship, uh, that's got to be the grid through which we view all life's problems. So in the face of death, Daniel and his friends seek the Lord, not Nebuchadnezzar. And this mercy that they seek from God, the God of heaven, is the true God. It's this deliverance. It's the answer to a riddle. It's the, it's the solution to a problem. And the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. You know what's interesting here? That Daniel, he says, and his companions, that they might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. You read interesting things when you're reading and you're studying the history, and some, some theologians, one in particular, kind of speculated, Daniel responded too quickly. You may say, what do you mean? He said, Daniel had an opportunity to have his pagan counterparts destroyed by a king, so Daniel responded too quickly. He should have let them be killed under the sword as God's judgment against them, and then Daniel and his friends had primary influence of the king. Let me tell you how ghastly wrong that is. At the very least, you're, you're devaluing the image of God in another human being. That's the very least. At the very most, why wouldn't you want to keep these people alive so that you could be a living witness to them? Daniel, we have to love his pro-life stance here. He's not in it for himself. He's not selfish. He's not just trying to further his Judean, you know, gang. He's trying to save the lives of people who were made in the image of God, who would probably be his enemies thereafter, but it didn't matter because he's not saving them so they'll be his friends. He's saving them because it's the right thing to do. So Daniel, in response to God's mercy, he comes to this worship. He comes to this moment of worship that is so beautifully written here, starting in verse 20. Blessed be the name of the God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness. And the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. This praise and worship, he's given it to God. The primary reason is, is because God is faithful. God is not a dormant God. The Babylonian wise men, their gods had come up empty. There was no God in Babylon that could do what Daniel was about to do for Nebuchadnezzar. So Daniel is highlighting, heralding, exulting in the faithfulness of God. I came to you needy and you answered me. God is not dormant. He's not lying in wait. He is moving and active. And we see here that Daniel gives glory to God because God is the source of wisdom and power, not Nebuchadnezzar, not the Chaldeans, not the, the wise book manuals that the wise men carried. God is the source of wisdom and power. God is the source of understanding. God is the source of knowledge. God is the one who puts kings in place. God is the one who removes kings. God is the one who put Nebuchadnezzar in place, and God will remove him. And all while Daniel watches, so Daniel's extolling the sovereign beauty, the truth of, of God. 
that even Nebuchadnezzar is dependent on Daniel's God because even Nebuchadnezzar now has to wait on the Lord. What does it look like to be faithful in a culture against God? It looks like living and preaching and in such a way that we are presenting truth to people, some who will hate it, some who will reject it, some who will chew on it, and some who will love it. But all we're doing in those moments is we're not putting ourselves out there. We're not putting our own ideas forward. We're trying to exalt the living God in a culture of death that hates him, just like Daniel did, just like we're called to do. I love what he says here in verse 22. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness. He knows what is in the darkness. And the light, not light, right? Not just light. He definitizes it. The light and the light dwells in him or with him. God is light. God knows what is in darkness. God sees through the darkness. Why do we have faith in God when we can't see God? Because as the Father said to his children, he sees you. He sees me. And we have hope. Verses 23 and 24 really are kind of a form of, it's part of this prayer, but it's just the, the gratitude. Daniel is showing gratitude. I've said this before, it bears repeating here, that I think that we need to remember that gratitude within worship, within prayer, is a form of worship, a very important part of worship. That is why there are some psalms in the Psalter. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. And antiphonal worship, that probably would have been sung by two separate parts. People would say the one verse, and other people would say his love endures forever, or his steadfast love endures forever. Why is thanksgiving such an important part? It's acknowledging something. When we are giving thanks to God, A, we're acknowledging two things primarily, more, but these two primary things. By giving thanks to God, we're acknowledging that whatever he's just done for us did not come from us and could not have. It comes from God. When we give thanks to God, we're acknowledging his supremacy over all things that by his hand and his hand only do we receive. Which is why Jesus said, yeah, you may have bread on your table, but thank God for it in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses. Recognize in prayer that we are grateful to God for his love, for his mercy, for his provision. Daniel is doing that here. But here's what I love about how this works. Daniel is, is to you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. Why? Well, here again, you've given me wisdom. You've given me wisdom and might. And you've made known to me what I asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. And so we have it right there, this idea, gratitude. But look, and then it transitions right into verse 34. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. What does Daniel do right after he worships and gives thanks? He goes. Now, what a, the, the point I want to make here is really pretty simple. What is worship designed to do? It is designed for us to ascribe worth to God. That is what it means to worship, to show God is worthy, to give God glory. But when we look at this in context here, what else does it do? Well, for Daniel, what it did, it emboldened him to go and now stand before the king and make the matter known. What does worship do for you and me? It should embolden us to go out into the world, to face the world, to face opposition. Because worship is not merely just a ritual that we do. It is a weapon. It's a weapon that we possess, that we come and we stand before the living God and we, we sing, we pray, and we proclaim. 
And worship, what it does is it energizes the soul for us to live for the Lord in a world of opposition. It's why forsaking the, the gathering with God's people is not a good thing. Because we come to worship as a body, to hear the voices, to hear the words being sung, to hear the prayers being prayed, to agree with the songs and prayers, to hear the proclamation of the word that our souls might be fed. And so for us to then go out to a dark and dead and hungry world and live boldly, that's what worship is designed to do. And it certainly did that for Daniel here. It put him in a position after he's received from God to then go and declare this matter to the king. So the king takes an audience with Daniel, of course, eager to hear what Daniel's thoughts are. Can Daniel do what the king has asked? And this is where, again, you see a difference in character. Daniel, in verse 27, after the question, basically, can you tell me my dream and my interpretation? I love what Daniel says to him. No wise man, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. So he's agreeing. Nebuchadnezzar's own wise man told him, no one, no human can do this. It's not possible. And Daniel says, indeed, it's not. No man that you've asked can do this. And this is verse 28, that, that beautiful, that glorious conjunction, that divine but right there. But, but... There is a God in heaven who reveals mystery, mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. And then he says what he says. What is God's mercy in this context? God's mercy is giving what is humanly impossible for the good of Daniel, one of his beloved God's mercy is giving what is humanly impossible for the good of one of his beloved in Daniel. Here we can see a, a quick comparison between Daniel and Ariok. Daniel, humble, no man can do this. This doesn't come from me. What is Ariok? In verse 25, then Ariok brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, don't you love it? I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known the king in his interpretation. You read that and you go, you found. Daniel came to you. Daniel came to you and said, hey, I'll, I'll, give the king, I'll give the king the dream and the interpretation. It's just this idea of putting oneself forward. Ariok puts himself forward. He's a, a human being. He's a man of flesh. He's a man of the world. What does he want? He wants to ingratiate himself to the king. Look, I'm the one who solved this riddle. I found the guy for you, and he's going to make it better. He wants all the credit. It's typical humanism. He's waving his own flag for glory. I solved the issue for you. And then there's Daniel, who says to the king, but as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have, more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Daniel, he says, only God can do this. I didn't do it. And by the way, I didn't do it because I'm any, I didn't, I didn't receive it. The mystery wasn't revealed to me because I'm any better than anybody else. I love this honest humility from Daniel. Ariok says, me, me, me. Nebuchadnezzar says, me, me, me. Daniel says, Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. 
It's the beauty of this, this worldview that separates these, these people out. One says me, one says the Lord. One says my glory, one says the glory of the Lord. One says I received, one says I am, and so forth and so on. And so what, what is humanly impossible, Daniel says God's power has made it known through revelation. He revealed the mystery to me, and now you have it because there's a God in heaven who is merciful. Verse 30, we, we can't let this paragraph in without making this statement. Verse 30, yes, glory goes to God. The whole point of this, and this will be true in Daniel repeatedly, the glory is God's alone. It's never going to be Daniel's. It's never Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's, or Hananiah, Mishael, or Azariah. It's never anybody else's. The glory is God's. And Daniel again and again and again puts God in the center and steps back. I love that beautiful statement by John the Baptist who says, I must decrease and he must increase. So many times you find Daniel stepping back from the spotlight so that the glory of Yahweh can shine in a moment. Beloved, I can't think of any better way to live our lives. Is it hard? Yeah. It's not easy to do that. It's hard to not let our success drive us to a place of putting our own selves, ourselves and our accomplishments on a pedestal and to ultimately say, I am worthy. Daniel challenges us to say, God is worthy. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He's created us in his image to shine for him. But God is the one who is glorified. So we think about God's mercy. It affirms faith and it compels worship. You know, it is true that Daniel stepped out in faith, but it's also true that he had a profound trust in the mercy of God. And that's what shapes this whole narrative. Faith is not the assurance of the most desired outcome. Faith is not the assurance of the most comfortable circumstances. Faith is not the assurance of the easiest path. Faith says that we are trusting in the sovereign mercy and goodness of God even when we can't see the other side. Not too long ago, I, I may have mentioned this before, I was talking to an older brother in the faith who was kind of helping me think through some issues in life. And I think like most people, sometimes I struggle with disappointment. Maybe you do too. You just get supremely disappointed about things and you wonder, will this ever be okay? When we're in, we're in the grip of that type of deep despair and disappointment, you know what you absolutely cannot do? You cannot see the other side. You cannot. You've been blinded from it, whether by your own actions, whether or some other circumstances. But that type of deep down disappointment, it is blinding. It is the reason people choose suicide or give in to despair and choose any number of pathways that lead them to destruction of some sort. But as this brother was talking to me, he said, sometimes, Brad, it sounds like in the midst of that disappointment, you can't see the other side, you just kind of give up, and you choose to be numb or distant, rather than saying, I know that Jesus is on the other side, I have to press in by faith. And he nailed me, he was absolutely right. That's exactly what happens. You, come, you go through, I go through circumstances sometimes, and I lose my way, because I can't see. And I'm, I'm focused so much on being able to see and understand that I kind of lose hope in a moment, and I choose despair. And it causes depression and anxiety and any number of different things. 
God, faith, what faith does is says, yeah, it's, it's painful. It hurts. No one likes to live in disappointment, and you have your share of yours. I know you do, and you deal with them. And no one likes to be there. But faith is not some, it's not just a Christian catchword that says, well, when life is hard, I have faith. You know, my goodness, if people do that, it makes me angry. Or that, you know, I'm in the da 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 I'm happy all the time. The, the old children's little gospel song. If you love that song, I'm sorry, I've never liked it. <laughs> because I have never felt as true. The point is, is that we find ourselves in situations where we can't see the other side more times than not. And there's always a choice in those moments. As cliche as it may sound in a moment, will I trust God in this and come what may, hang on to that trust with all I can? Or will I let despair and depression and sadness take hold of me and put me in a place that I never wanted to be? Because those things will take you to places that you never wanted to go and you'll pay a price that you never wanted to pay. So beloved, I'm encouraging you with me right now, myself mainly, but be encouraged by it. Let's choose faith when we can't see the other side. Daniel did, and it was powerful. I don't know what God will do in your life. I don't know what he'll do in mine. But like the beavers said to the Pevensey children, I know that he is good, and he is the king. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your word this morning and its power. I've, God, I'm humbled by this book. So grateful that you inscripturated it that you saved it for your people so that in April of 2021 we could read it and be reminded that, yes, we are not so different. God, I thank you for Jesus Christ whom you've given on our behalf, and I thank you for the truth and beauty of your word. I pray that you would deepen our roots this morning, transform us, and cause us to continue to deepen our faith for your glory and for our growth. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.